and we really had kind of a clockwork view of the brain where, you know, the brain is composed of a bunch of parts. And you figure out what each of the parts do, we'll figure out how the, how the brain works. But now the field is very much shifted. Now we're no longer focused on individual parts. It's all about emergent properties. To the extent that you have control over your own thoughts, you need something that's a controlling signal, a top-down feedback controlling signal. And right now this alpha-beta signal is, the, is a good candidate for it. Don't think of alpha or beta as having one function in the brain. It doesn't. What alpha, beta versus gamma is are different energy states of the network. Good day, everyone. This is Brain Inspired. I'm Paul. My guest today is Earl Miller. Earl runs the Miller Lab at MIT, where he studies how our brains carry out our executive functions, like working memory, attention, decision-making. In particular, he's interested in the role of the prefrontal cortex and how it coordinates with other brain areas to carry out these functions. During this episode, we talk broadly about how neuroscience has changed um, throughout Earl's career and how his own thoughts have changed along with that. Uh, one thing that we focus on is the increasing appreciation of brain oscillations for our cognition. Recently on Brain Inspired, we've discussed oscillations quite a bit. On episode 153, Carolyn Dicey Jennings discussed her philosophical ideas relating attention to the notion of the self, and she leans a lot on Earl's research uh, with oscillations to make that argument. In episode 160, Olya Jensen discussed his work in humans, uh, showing that low-frequency oscillations exert a top-down control on incoming sensory stimuli, uh, and this is in direct agreement with Earl's work uh, over many years in non-human primates. So we continue that discussion relating low-frequency oscillations to executive control. Uh, we also discuss a new concept uh, Earl has developed called spatial computing, which is an account of how brain oscillations can dictate where in various brain areas neural activity uh, can be on or off, and uh, hence contribute or not to ongoing mental function. We also discuss working memory in particular and a host of related topics. Show notes are at brainspired.co slash podcast slash 162. Recently, a listener donated a generous amount to Brain Inspired, and when I thanked them, uh, I also noted that if half of my listeners were a tenth as generous, um, I'd be able to continue doing Brain Inspired indefinitely. Anyway, if you want to ensure that this podcast continues, consider supporting it even for a tiny amount. It helps way more than you know. Learn more about that at braininspired.co. Thank you to everyone who has uh, or continues to support the show. Uh, I deeply appreciate it. And of course, I appreciate Earl spending this time with me. And here he is. It's President's Day, so the university is closed. Of course, you're still in lab. But uh, my, my main pressing question, first of all, is have you played your bass guitar yet today? Today? No, not today. Tonight, I'll play. Do you play daily? Pretty much, yeah. Do you have a Do you have a show tonight, or is that is that when you practice? No, no, no. Is that no um, it's just you know my hobby. So tonight I'll be playing you know alone. Uh, you know I play with a local band here. We uh, we used to play a lot before, like big regularly before COVID. Then COVID sort of knocked everything down. But we're all busy professionals, as fellow neuroscientists and a neurologist and stuff like that. So we're all busy, so we don't get a chance to play even every week. But we play every few oh. weeks. 
How long have you been practicing playing? Playing bass guitar? Bass. Well, I, I don't know what you started with. Have you been playing yeah, instruments since you were a kid? Yes, I actually, I, I have many years playing trumpet. I was a real band geek in junior high school and high school. <laughs> so I took private lessons. I was in orchestra. I was in swing band. I was in jazz band. I was in a chamber ensemble. And then um, I went to uh, graduate school and sort of uh, everything but science sort of fell by the wayside. And about 10 years ago, I decided I wanted to start playing again. And I still have my old trumpet, but I wanted to pick up a new instrument. I always loved the bass. And I have a bunch of friends who sing and play guitar, and they're always looking for a bass player. So there you go. Oh, because everyone plays guitar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shake a tree, 10 guitars will fall out. <laughs> That's right. That's what I play. I have this guitar hanging right next to me, and I haven't played it uh, in a few days, and I need to get back on it. So maybe I'll just take some inspiration from you. There you go. Uh, I mean, before we start talking about science, I'm just kind of curious. I've had people tell me in the past that uh, playing music, you know, affects their other cognitive um, functions, right? So do do you feel like musicianship um, has influenced the way that you move about your science career? Well, I can't say because I don't have a control group. Um, however, right. I, I will say that, you know, when you're a kid and you're learning music, I mean, it teaches you discipline, it teaches you focus, it teaches you concentration. If you want to get ahead, you got to practice regularly, you got to follow a regimen, you can't just play random stuff. So it really teaches you how to, uh, how to focus and stay on task. Hmm. I had a friend who told me that most, uh, that playing, if you play music, um, it increases the likelihood that you'll become a medical doctor. I know that you, you started in uh, in like pre-med, right? I did, yeah. But I think it's true. There's there's a lot of scientists I notice who play, who play music. In fact, you know, in, in it, the Cognitive Neuroscience Society meeting is at the end of March, and I'm playing in the in the um, scientist band, Pavlov's Dogs. We're doing a oh, gig cool. at the Hyatt Regency on Saturday, March 25th, 9.30 p.m. In the, in the ballroom, San Francisco. If you're at the Cognitive wow. Neuroscience Society meeting, it's where all the cool kids will be. Okay. I've never had someone plug music on, on the podcast. That's a first. That, that's great. <laughs> so um, a recent review that uh, you co-authored on, the, um, on Working Memory begins, over 30 years ago, Working Memory was solved. Mm-hmm. And so we're going we're gonna to talk a lot about your work on Working Memory. Okay. But just in, in a very broad picture, how have your views on not only Working Memory, but just the brain and mind, how have they changed over many years? Oh, dr- dramatically. When I was a graduate student, back in the 20th century, in the mid-80s, when I was a graduate student, late 80s, let's be fair, um, <laughs> the, the focus was on the brain's individual parts. State-of-the-art was single electrode recording. You record from one neuron at a time. We focus on individual neurons. We focus on individual brain areas. And we really had kind of a clockwork view of the brain where, you know, the brain is composed of a bunch of parts, and you figure out what each of the parts do, we'll figure out how the, how the brain works. Now, and things have changed dramatically since then. I'm not, not saying that's wrong. There is some truth to that. But also it's foundational. It's a necessary step. You have to figure out the parts before you figure out the whole. But now the field is very much shifted. Now we're no longer focused on individual parts. It's all about emergent properties. You know, how the, what the parts do, the properties that, that the um brain parts have when they're working together as a whole, things you can't tell by focusing on, on one neuron or one brain area at a time. 
And one of those things is uh, is um, things like oscillatory dynamics, which is which are, are uh, you know, your brain is uh, awash in these electric fields that are constantly fluctuating rhythmically anywhere from one time a second to 100 times a second or more. And when I was a graduate student, naturally, you know, since we were focused on individual neurons and oscillations are an emergent property, they were dismissed as like the humming of a car engine. They, they reflect the engine running, but they don't actually make the engine run. Um, that analogy isn't perfect because actually the, the vibrations of an engine has to be tuned in order so it doesn't shake itself to death. And so mm -hmm. the vibrations reinforce one another. So actually the oscillations actually do help engines run. But leaving that analogy aside for the moment, um, it's becoming increasingly clear to us that that these oscillations are, are highly functional. And there's no reason to think they're not high, highly functional. And there's every reason to think they are. I mean, the brain is a, the, your brain is an electrical chemical machine. Neurons spike when their membrane potential reaches a certain threshold. And these neurons are resting in, in other neurons that are creating electric fields. And what do electric fields do when they fluctuate? They're moving the membrane threshold further and closer away to the spiking threshold. You have to be, I mean, they, it has to, it's, it's, it's inevitable they have going to have a role in brain function. Mm -hmm. But now that we're um, sort of moving on to the 20, 20th century neuroscience is all about the parts. And now it's all about the whole, about the emergent properties, about network properties and figuring out how things work together. And that's an important part of it. Do you, I know this is an unfair question, but even when I, so I was a, a non-human primate um, neurophysiologist. And mm -hmm. even when I started, which was, you know, late 2000s, we were still recording single neurons, you know, yep. and do you look back on those many years that you spent recording single neurons? Do you look back on it and think, I wish I'd spent my time differently? Or do you think that that was like a necessary step as technology, you know, increases? Now we have a, a different view of the brain, but you, not, not all that was like just wasted time, right? No, no, no. That was foundational. You can't figure out how the parts work together until you start figuring out the parts. And it's clear that the, that the first, like one, one big revolution was we used to think every neuron had one function. You figure out what that neuron does and you'll figure out what every neuron does. You'll figure out the brain. And now we know there's things like mixed selectivity, multifunctional neurons all, all over cortex. But we couldn't figure out that without getting well, going to the first step. So, you know, I don't think of the time we spent recording single neurons as time wasted. There was a time, you know, it was only as recently as 1962 that no one even knew how to make single neurons activate. And people like Mountcastle and Hubel and Wiesel figured that out. We had to get through that. We had to figure out what neurons do in isolation before we could figure out, begin to figure out what they're doing in concert with one another. So no, it wasn't a waste of time. It was absolutely foundational. And there was a, a, a it was a, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of the work we did in, in the past and we wouldn't be here if we weren't there. Is that, so you, you kind of referenced the single neuron doctrine, that, that the old idea that each neuron uh, has a specific function, is dedicated to a function, and that that was like the prevailing view. Was that like a ubiquitous prevailing view or, you know, because that's the view that I have also, that that's, yeah. that that's the history, right? But is it really that clean or did like the whole field just accept that that was probably the way things were or was there plenty of other, were there plenty of other ideas floating around? Well, nothing is ever that clean. I would say it was the modal view in the field. Most people felt that way, but not everybody. I mean, people as early as a Walter Freeman, for example, or Donald Hebb talked about the role of electric fields in, in producing dynamics that, that integrate the activity of individual neurons. So my PhD advisor, Charlie Gross, used to like to say there are no new ideas, only old ideas rediscovered. But they had rediscovered always. So back then, those people were on the fringe. And now it's more like the common. Now the people who think that 
single neurons only have one function. They're the ones who are more on the fringe now, but that's the way science works. It's, it's paradigm shifting. Mm-hmm. You feel, and you, you feel one way and then the field changes and we all feel somewhere else with, with a lot, with a lot of drama along the way. Yeah. A lot of drama. What about um, action potentials? Do you still consider them the currency of the, of the brain given, you know, have we shifted away from thinking about a spike as the code of, inf- you know, the information code? As the code and the only code, I would say, yeah, but they're an important code. I mean, spike, you don't get electrical fields, you don't get local field potentials without spiking. So it's all, see, here's the thing. The way we used to think about things was, was that spiking and spike rate was the only important thing. And all these other things were not doing anything. They were epiphenomenal. They, they were, could be ignored. Now we're realizing that it's, all of this together is what, 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 how the brain works. It's spiking and the fields they produce and dynamics they produce and the network properties. But you, so to say that it's all together, it's all that together. It's not just one, one thing or another. And I don't know, you, you, we don't know anything about how the brain works yet. Let's, let's be perfectly honest. We've learned a lot in the past, we've changed a lot in the past 30 years, um, but we still, there's still a lot we don't know. And to my mind, a theory that explains more phenomenon is way better than a theory that explains one phenomenon and ignores everything else. I have trouble wrapping my head. So I agree with what you say, you know, thinking about across levels of scale and uh, processes and thinking about it more of a, in a holistic way, but I have trouble wrapping my head around it and, and having it all in my working memory or something, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. and feeling like comfortable, like I understand something. It's like I can only grasp at a few, like at a section at a time. And it's hard to piece it all together. Do you feel like you have it in your head in a comfortable space? Um, no. Uh, the brain is really <laughs> complex, and we're not, we're not going to figure it out in my lifetime. And I've made peace with oh. that. I mean, like, everything we're doing now is a stepping stone to eventually figuring out more about how it works. And if the argument is, well, gee, it's so, all this stuff is so complicated, we're never going to figure it out, you know, the next 10, 15, even 20 years. Well, you got to get over that because the brain is not going to be figured out in my lifetime and your lifetime, even in the lifetime of the next generation of students. We're all just contributing stepping stones to get to a, a greater truth later. And well, I'm, so I'm, what you... I'm perfectly comfortable with that. Well, I mean, you've made, a, you've made a lot of progress in our understanding of the brain, much of which we're going to talk about here in a minute. But there are people who have kind of grand unified theories of the brain. What, what do you think, not necessarily of those people, but of, you know, are we ready? What you would say is that we're not ready for something like that. No, not at all. I think all along the way, we got to generate hypotheses. We got to generate paradigms. We got to wait models, ways of looking at frameworks for looking at things. And then we test them. And then when they fall short, we replace them with new theories, frameworks, and hypotheses. So no, I mean, you need people to come along with big ideas about what's going on just as a way of moving the field forward, even if we're not quite there yet to really have a true unified theory. Okay, so it's been uh, over 20 years now. I, I realized, so Miller and Cohen 2001 is this classic paper proposing a function for the prefrontal cortex. And I realized you probably have graduate students now that were born after that uh, paper came out. And I was yeah, trying to think back. Old. <laughs> well, I was trying to think back when I was a graduate student, like if, if papers that were written like right before I was born, like had a big influence on me. And I'm not sure, but I wanted to ask you, first of all, what, what the big idea was uh, from that paper and then how you think and feel that it has held up over the years. 
Well, so the big idea, when I first started, I actually started out working in the visual system, and I got interested in um, prefrontal cortex because of the work of people like Joaquin Fuster and Pat Gilman or Quiche, and I was a little more interested in like the higher-level cognition stuff, and I felt like when I was working in high-level visual cortex, I thought I was looking at the the influence of these high-level cognitive phenomenon on, on visual oh. processing, but I, but I wanted to get at the heart of the heart of the matter. So when I... um moved up we, MIT to start my faculty position, I switched from visual cortex to prefrontal cortex. Okay. And I this, was wondering this, how that came about because all your earliest, earliest publications are all like in uh, infra, 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 yeah, IT cortex, cortex, infrotemporal cortex, yeah. yeah. In Charlie Gross's lab, that's right. And then yeah. I did my postdoc with Bob Desmond's lab and same thing. I moved up same. to the prefrontal cortex when I started my uh, faculty position. I'll, I'll tell you, parenthetically, when I first moved, um, my assistant professor here at MIT and I, told the department I was switching, my department head, I was switching to uh, um, prefrontal cortex. I got some blowback from that. They're like, oh, you know, we hired you to do visual system stuff in oh, wow. our group. And, you know, people who change fields in midstream, you know, they tend not to succeed. And I said, no, I'm going to do it anyway. That's, that's, that's kind of crazy because we're just talking about a brain area switch. I mean, th that's yeah. part of the, the paradigm shift also is um, you were talking about understanding the parts and you, you know, are focused a lot on prefrontal cortex, but that's a part of, you know, uh, big networks. And so it's weird to think of it in isolation. And, you know, and it used to be that everyone, I don't know if it's still this way, you can tell me, but everyone kind of had their own special area that they were known for. And that, and people, other people should stay away from my area. Let me uh, record from that, that area. Yeah, I guess that that's, that's true to, to some extent. But, you know, when I, um, even when we, we first, so when I started the lab in 1995, we were first working on the multiple electro techniques so we could be record from more than one neuron at, at, at a time. Yeah. And back then we were still focused on single areas because we only could stick our one or two or three or in that case four or five electrodes in a single area. But now that we, that, now that now with the rise of multiple electro recording, we almost never focus. We, we may use prefrontal cortex as a fulcrum because we're interested in like higher level cognitive functions. But we recorded multiple brain areas. So later, our, our recent experiments are recording like six cortical areas and two subcortical areas simultaneously because the brain is networks all working together. And you got to understand how all these things work together if you want to understand cognition. But I think right, we got so, off top, topic here. Yeah, so we, we're, I must have <laughs> to bring us back. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So... When I started um, working in prefrontal cortex, the state of the art was um, working memory. That was the work. The prefrontal cortex does working memory. It holds things in mind. Now we got to now just putting that in a bit a little bit of context. That was sort of the way it was felt. The prefrontal cortex is involved in holding things in your conscious mind so you could do stuff with it. Mm -hmm. um, even so, the original working memory model wasn't just maintenance. It was also the executive part, the control of working memory. And I remember when I started in, in the prefrontal cortex, I thought, well, you know, it's got to be more than just holding stuff in mind. And the way um, I think the one thing we did was that um, one of the things we did was that, you know, we, neurophysiology is a bit, I don't need to tell you, neurophysiology is a bit like radar. The signal you get out depends on the signal you put into the brain. <laughs> and at the time, what people did is they state-of-the-art was having a train a working memory task, and what you vary across trials is what information, what stimulus, what location, what object the animal holds a working memory, and that's what you see from your electrodes, is that stuff varying. The rest of it was all backdrop, right? And I remember I thought at the time, well, this is all very interesting and stuff, but the animal knows how to do this working memory task. 
how does the animal know how to do the task? That seems to be where cognition is, not the stuff it's holding in mind, but it, the, but the operations it learned to hold the stuff in mind and respond at the right time and something like that. So we started doing something that people hadn't done before. We not only varied what object or picture or stimulus the animal is holding in mind, we also varied the rules the animal applied to it We've mm -hmm. in a balanced way. And you can actually compare the two head to head. And when you do that, many more neurons in the prefrontal cortex cared more about the rules of the task than they did about the... Uh, what the animal was, the, the content, the information the animal was operating on. So that's what led to Miller and Cohn was that I, I thought um, we had this uh, feeling, well, we got to take the field into this other domain where we understand how the brain operates, how the brain knows what it learns the rules of the game, how the brain learns what it can do what it does. And goal direction, executive brain function is all about identifying goals and coming up with means to achieve them. And this is all acquired hmm. knowledge. So that led to this um, insight that, that what um, the prefrontal cortex does is it learns the rules of the game. It figures out how the world works and uses that to like a puppet master to direct activity in the rest of cortex. And this isn't, wasn't completely in isolation. There was the bias competition model of Desimone and Duncan, where they said top-down signals select things for visual attention. So it was kind of an, an extension of that. But I think the main insight was that the prefrontal cortex wasn't learning these rules or the logic of a goal-directed task. It wasn't learning them as an esoteric set of logical operations. It was expressing these logical operations in terms of a map of which circuits in the rest of cortex you need to activate to do that thing, to follow that rule. So we called them rule maps because they were, they were the prefrontal cortex was absorbing this the, the rules of the game, the goal-oriented structure of the world, but it was expressing it in terms of what circuits need to be activated in the rest of the brain as if it was like had a, developed a roadmap or a, uh, it was like a traffic cop developing a roadmap that was that uh, that had, once it had this map, it could tell the rest of the cortex what to do. And that's essentially the Miller and Cohn model. And, and how do you how do you feel that it has aged? Are you still um, is there anything that you would have changed about it or, or you think you got wrong? Well, I think the idea of the prefrontal cortex learns rules and le learns the goal oriented structure of the world. I think that's pretty much still true. How it does, it's an, another story. Like there's certainly there, and we're thinking about when we're writing a review that up, updates a few things. Um, mm -hmm. One thing we've, we've un, at the time, we underappreciated the role of subcortical structures in, in this process. You know, the um, prefrontal, the, cort the cortex as a whole, um, it, I look, I now view it as, as a add-on extension upgrade to the subcortical structures that were already doing a lot of these things before we evolved a cortex. So you can't understand the cortex without understanding like the basal ganglia and the thalamus, for example. The, um, you know, goal-directed executive functions grew out of um, systems for voluntary motor control. It expanded on that. And that's your cortex does. It took these simple functions your subcortex was doing, whether it's, you know, voluntary movement or memory consolidation at the campus, and added tissue that could, more complex and a lot more tissue to get, that could expand upon those functions. So I would bring in the role of subcortical structures in directing this. And there's evidence from that, uh, that the, like the anterior thalamic nuclei are there to help traffic feedback signals from the front of the brain to the back of the brain, these top-down executive control signals. And the other thing, if we go back to the oscillations thing, is how does the brain establish these uh, pathways? How, how does the traffic cop tell which cortical or which circuits to activate in the rest of the cortex? It can't be anatomy alone because there's lots of synapses in, in your brain and it takes a long time to change those synapses. It takes a long time to build uh, um, new pathways in your brain. 
So, the, so that's where I bring in the role of oscillatory dynamics. That's what we think what oscillation is doing. We think of now, we, I think, or now we think of um, of the cortex. Brain anatomy is not being destiny, but possibility. Brain anatomy is like the road and highway system. It just says where traffic could go. And your thoughts are where traffic actually does flow from moment to moment. And something's got to direct that traffic. And we think these patterns of oscillatory resonance, neurons that fire, neurons that hum together, temporarily wire together, these shifting patterns of oscillatory resonance are what, are what actually determines where the traffic flows on the infrastructure of its anatomy. And, be, be, and I'll say one last thing before we move, move on is sure. that, um, that um, uh, people, when I say this, people say, oh, you're saying anatomy is important. No, anatomy is important. You, the traffic doesn't go anywhere without the infrastructure. And the infrastructure is constraining about where you build new roads or you tear down old roads. That's very, very important. But cognition is going to be at how, about how all this activity dances along all this infrastructure anatomy. And that's what these emergent properties do is they control their large scale oscillations, oscillatory dynamics, local field potentials, electrical fields. They are large scale organized changes of neuronal excitability. And that's going to be the kind of thing that's going to that to my mind, has to be the thing that, that, that allows a sort of flexible direction of thoughts that we associate with executive brain functions and high-level cognition. Well, there's a lot of metaphors that you threw out there. And uh, <laughs> another one that you frequently use is guardrails. You, you think of oscillations as guardrails for that traffic, but the traffic is still action potentials. You still think of that as the main currency, traffic. Uh, yes, I do. I think that, again, you, without spiking, you don't have anything. And, and, and uh, these large-scale organizations of excitability are going to sculpt where, where the spikes flow and which neurons uh, become activated. In fact, we um, have a paper that's just about to come out, a new theory called spatial computing. Oh, and this, ask this, is this. A, yeah. so, this is sort of an extension of Miller and Cohn in the sense that, well, how does the brain use these large these, this direction, these large-scale changes of excitability? How does it use that to do things? And the idea is that the way your brain does computation is by controlling where information is expressed in its networks. That, yeah, what you guys call spatial computing. Let, let's go spatial ahead and um, get, to, get to that. Um, so I, I recently had Ola Jensen on um, the podcast talking about, and in his case, he focuses on alpha uh, oscillations, but I mean, it's basically alpha, beta, these really yeah. slow oscillations as being a top-down um, controlling signal, much like you have developed in your own work. Um, whereas the, there are these high-frequency gamma oscillations that are more the currency of incoming sensory stimuli that are being controlled by the uh, alpha-beta guardrails, right? Um, yeah. And and so you ascribe to that story. Um, and uh, but spatial computing is on top of that is a much more nuanced uh, location-based um, ability. How how do the beta waves, beta alpha-beta waves, know where to go and what to do, right? Well, first of all, let's back up a moment. We talk, when we talk about alpha beta waves, first of all, in, in frontal cortex, it's beta, but we've done recordings that we record all right. over cortex. Right. And as you move backwards in cortex, the frequencies drop a little bit. Um, so high gamma becomes slightly less high gamma and beta becomes alpha. Now, probably when we learn more about the brain, we'll learn more about the subtleties of different um, you know, frequency bands, alpha, beta, or whatnot. But you're going to keep in mind about alpha versus beta or this is that those are arbitrary frequency yeah. bands that someone made up 150 years ago. So yeah. they don't necessarily correspond to any real functional difference. The difference will be between lower and higher frequency oscillations. And think of them as not, don't think of, um, I think, 
Ole Johansson would agree with me, don't think of alpha or beta as having one function in the brain. It doesn't. It, it's good for a particular function in the brain, which is top-down control. What alpha, beta versus gamma is are different energy states of the network. Okay, when the when the when the um, networks are when neurons are spiking at a, at a moderate rate, you get the frequency in the alpha beta range. And then when there's a sensory input, there's more energy coming in, there's more spiking, then things go, fly up to the, the, the gamma range. So think of it as, as alpha, beta, or gamma as different energy states of the network. And the way you control gammas by forcing networks into either allowing networks to express that energy to gamma, or you can use alpha or beta to, uh, or to force networks in certain locations in cortex to go down to a lower energy state, and that prevents gamma from ha happening. So that's the idea, and the idea behind spatial computing is that, so the idea behind spatial computing in a nutshell, and it's hard to express in a nutshell. <laughs> you, you can take I'll, it down, that's fine. Yeah. I'll try, um, is that the information about the contents of, of thought, the, the things we see, the things we think about, motor commands, the um, um, sensory information, the, nut, the nuts and bolts, the primitives of, of how we perceive the world, that's all stored in the brain and cortex in high frequency components and the details of how individual neurons are, are wired together. And they're expressed repeatedly all over cortex, all over cortical networks. Think of all these ensembles corresponding to like a picture of an apple, for example. They will be expressed multiple, multiple places redundantly all, all over cortex in local and in, in global networks, right? Um, and what think of, think of think of those representations of stimuli as being like grains of sand in a big sandbox. And what? Let me think, uh, clarification question. Just, so yeah, literally, like let's let's say Apple um, is has a thousand different repeated uh, network structure motifs in your brain. Is that is yeah. what you're saying? Okay, that's okay. the idea. Sorry, that's the idea. So you'll be Apple expressed all over the place. So now um. Now, um, what alpha and beta do is they control, alpha, alpha basically is our pattern signal. They're a pattern signal to being imposed on cortex. And wherever alpha beta lands in cortex, that forces a network, local network down to a lower energy state. So now gamma can't be expressed. Okay. And places where alpha beta isn't is where gamma can be expressed. So think of this pattern of alpha beta as kind of a photographic negative of where you want information to be expressed in cortex. So mm -hmm. now let's go back to the grain of sand analogy. You have these, all the apples, oranges, all this stuff expressed repeatedly in multiple grains of sand all over this big sandbox. And the alpha beta signals, this pattern signal is acting more uh, on, on a macro scale. So now think of a checkerboard or patchwork expressed on, on this grain of sand, on this sandbox, right? So now if I express, if I have one pattern of uh, um, this checkerboard or patch pattern on this sandbox, then only certain parts of that sandbox can express apple or orange. And if I switch the pattern of this patchwork, then other parts of that sandbox will express apple and orange. So that's why we think computation works. So, so one way to think about it is like, imagine I set up an animal on a task where the animal is, um, has to, simple task, the animal has to remember two pictures in the order in which I present them. So apple and orange or orange and apple, or apple and house, or house and apple. You get the, get the idea. So here's how it works. So your brain, the brain's already been trained on this task. It knows the operations. So here's what happens. So now the first stimulus is about to come along. And what the brain does is set up this pattern of alpha beta so that, um, and let's keep it very simple. So let's say there's just two patches, right? I'll put multiple hands okay. there, okay? So you have two patches, and one pattern of alpha beta activation corresponds to slot number one for the first object. 
So the first stimulus comes along in this task and the brain shifts its alpha beta pattern to create this patch where the first where the first stimulus is going to be expressed. So the first stimulus comes along at the apple and all the neurons in that patch that, are, that where the gamma is or beta is where everything else is, they, they, they go apple, apple, apple because the animal is seeing the apple, right? Mm -hmm. And they get primed. Then the second stimulus comes along and the, batter, the brain shifts to another alpha beta pattern. And now a different patch corresponding to slot number two, it ex, it's, it's allowed to express the representation of the second stimulus that comes along. Let's say it's um, orange, 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 right? And now at the end of the delay, I want to recall, the animal has to recall, or me for that matter, um, which stimulus was first, which one was second, apple, orange. You you re what you recreate the alpha beta pattern that corresponded to apple, and all the neurons that first got activated when the apple was seen were primed. And now they can say apple, apple, apple. And now I want to recall the second stimulus. I shift to new alpha beta pattern, and the neurons that were primed by orange can now can now be express their activity and say orange, orange, orange. So that's just that's that the brain does operations. It, its operating system works. Its computations work by controlling where inf where information is expressed in cortex. Now, no doubt that's going to be way too simple. But at the end, the brain represents information. That's that's a doesn't have like you know calculating circuits in the brain as far as we we, we well it may have a few it may have some. But uh, <laughs> representing information is a major way the brain does things. So it seems to me that a lot of its operating system should be in the control of representation. Hmm. I asked Olio this also, um, and he said that he couldn't get rid of the homunculus. And so, you know, the question is like, well, if if we're using beta, alpha, beta to configure the system in certain con control and configure um, the content, where does that control come from? You know, um, do, do we still have the homunculus problem? If I had the answer to that question, we would have the oh. brain all figured out. We could, yeah, we could right. all go home. So, yes. Obviously, it's not going to be homunculus. It's going to be an emergent property. And what is that emergent property of? Well, I'll do some hand-waving here. Um, there's recurrent anatomically closed-loop connections between the prefrontal cortex and, and the basal ganglia and thalamus. And there's a big influx of dopamine, which signals reward and reward prediction error. So it could tune up these, you know, first of all, when you see dopamine, it's a dopamine can be a um, permissive signal. The gating signal allows the brain to change and form these representations that you needed for high level control. And the anatom closed anatomical loops between the court pits like the prefrontal cortex and subcortex. When, whenever whenever I see closed anatomical loops in the brain, I think recurrent I think re recurrent recurrent processing. I think and I hmm. think um uh um you know the bootstrapping operations. Right? Recursion. Mm -hmm. That's the word I was looking for. Recursion. I think of bootstrapping operations. So Think about the anatomical loops between the prefrontal cortex down to the basal ganglia, back through the thalamus, back up the cortex again. It's like a snake eating its tail. There's these channels going through. There's some crosstalk, but there's some channels going going through there. And when you see something like that in the brain, what I think is recursive processing. The system can learn something through one iteration, and then when it changes, that becomes fodder fodder for more material for another iteration, another iteration. And it's got to be something that's open ended that way, some sort of bootstrapping recursive process that allows the open-ended nature of, of human cognition. So control must come from some tuning up of these recurrent uh, um, 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 processing, these, these bootstrapping operations that allow the brain to form these higher and higher representations that contain information about how to achieve goals. If you think we've done a lot of work on how the brain learns categories and concepts, mm -hmm. cat versus dog, numbers, same versus different. If you think about it, if I can identify 
a cat I've never seen before, I can now generalize across all the cats in the world and I have a, some template or some, um, you know, representation of my brain of what, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a cat is. Well, you know, goal direction, if you can generalize among a bunch of individuals in the present, it's the same process that allows you to generalize to the, to the, to the future. So I think it's the same part, parcel of the same operation. I I recently also had Carolyn Dicey Jennings on the podcast and she leans a lot. She's a philosopher and she leans a lot on your work with Tim Bushman about, you know, this, this alpha beta control oscillations story um, to argue that uh, we have a self, that that's evident evidence that we have a self. And we, I know we were, you were just doing some hand waving and we don't need to go down a long <laughs> hand waving uh, conversation, but I, I just wondering if you had any thoughts on, on that since I asked about, you know, where, where the control comes from. And then I remembered uh, her philosophical work suggesting not necessarily that it's coming from the self, but that, that this is evidence for a self. Well, it's beautiful. And I, and I love that work. That, that's really, really nice work. I guess it all depends. And I'm about to get hand wavy here. How you define do yeah. self, <laughs> but yeah. uh, how, do you, how do you define self? I, I don't know, but I, I like, how do you define free will? This is a question we actually take up in one of the classes that's, I teach. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, you know, to the extent that you have control over your own thoughts, you need something that's a controlling signal, a top-down feedback controlling signal. And right now, this alpha-beta signal is the is a good candidate for it. And again, I wouldn't say, but I don't want to give anybody the impression that, oh, alpha-beta does this one thing in the brain, it's executive control. The alpha-beta is an energy state that's useful for executive control. And we could talk about why it's low frequencies are better for executive control than high frequencies. It's probably because uh, low frequencies are better for organizing large-scale organization of because um, it's also when you have low frequencies also larger spatial extent. It's good for organizing large-scale organization of um, excitability in, in the in the brain, right? I mean, if you think if you look at a pond when it's raining, there's a bunch of high like it's drizzling a bit, there's a bunch of high frequency um, ripples in the pond. But if a boat goes by, that boat's going to swamp out every, everything else with its wake. So that's probably why low frequencies um, are are more associated with with executive control because they have a way of overriding and organizing um, behavior, um, neurophysiology, neural activity on a large scale. You also talk about the idea of dimensionality, um, and I mean this goes back to the spatial computing, right? So you have this like really high dimensional uh, neural activity, which is the content, um, and then you have this alpha beta control, right, that is controlling that content. Um, and you've written about it as if um, that alpha beta is uh, serving as guardrails to um, to funnel information along a lower dimension. Um, mm -hmm. And is, is this why we, we have access to only one or two things in our head at a given time? Is that <laughs> is that related to the funneling and, and how we can access the content? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll get to cognitive capacity in a second, but I want to just when you talk about the guardrails, one extension of this work is so we've worked a lot on spiking and, and LFPs. And by the way, the idea that LFPs, you know, obviously LFPs are going to have a um, uh, um, causal role in where um, spiking occurs because you look all over the brain, you see spiking phase locks to different um, oscillatory phases of ongoing uh, LFP oscillations. So, so it seems like, you know, it is organizing a Sorry, go ahead. Does everyone agree yeah. with you? Is that is that a ubiquitous agree, agreement in the field that LFPs are causal or because some people might still say they're epiphenomenal, right? Yeah, well, no, of course. But that this is where we get into paradigm shifting and, and Thomas Kuhn. People feel that way, I think, because uh, they're still kind of like 
the vestiges of this old way of thinking about things that spikes and everything and individual neurons or everything. I mean, this is just physics. I mean, the electric fields work both directions. I mean, if you can, everybody agrees you can read interesting information from LFPs and even electric mm -hmm. fields. They say, oh, but it can't work in the other way. It just works well. No, that's not the way physics work. If you have these electrical fields that and you can read information from, them, it works the other, other way too. And uh, so, it, I mean, it ha it's pretty much inevitable, you know? And when, when I say that, people say, oh, but you look at, a, you record from a single neuron in a dish and you see the action potential is huge and the LFP is, is small. Well, yeah, that's a single neuron. Your brain is not a single neuron. Your brain's a gazillion neurons all smooshed together again, all interacting. And, you know, um, these, these effects add up in a very nonlinear way. And I'll put it this way. These fluctuations in electrical fields they're so strong that we can measure them outside the skull 150 years ago using crude equipment. And you're going to tell me that doesn't have an influence inside the skull? No way. Of course it does. You know, and also I, I was on Twitter the other day and somebody, I wish I remember their name, I give them credit for it, but someone posted a Twitter, an EM um, photograph of three neurons together. Right. And the three neurons are together and, and they're, 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 their axons are, are forming synapses, they're dendrites. Right. Mm -hmm. But these three neurons, their bodies are smushed together really, really tight. The dendrites and the axons are around it like a halo, but the neuron bodies are smushed together. In fact, the neurons, they flatten their bodies out. So they have maximal contact between the soma. There's no synaptic transmission going on there. You know, <laughs> you can tell me neurons smush together like that because everything is all spiking in synapses and releases neurotransmitters. Obviously not. Sorry, so that was a, a, a sidetrack. What was the question again? No, that that's okay. Um, well, we were talking about the dimensionality and the capacity ah, um, that yeah. these signals, yeah. So lately what we've been working on with my colleague, uh, Dimitris Panosis at University College London, is that we're taking these neural activity like LFPs and we're extending it up a little bit to the to electric field, near electric fields in the brain. Now, when I say electric fields, I'm not talking about electric fields you read, you know, 10 feet away. I'm talking about near electric fields hovering around all this activity that neurons are doing. And what Dimitri showed quite elegantly in one of the papers was published last year is that if you look at things at the electrical field level, it's near electric field level, you can read the contents of working memory just like you can with single neurons. But here's the thing, no representational drift, little or no representational drift. Those electric field signals are steady, 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 trial to trial to trial. Hmm. And if you record on the single neuron level, you know this as well as I do, you get massive representational drift. You can record from 100 neurons, 1,000 neurons, a million neurons individually. And if you do the same trial 20 times in a row, you'll get 20 different patterns of activity. Do it 1,000 times, you'll get 1,000 different patterns of activity. The neurons, think of the brain as like a giant orchestra. The neurons are individual players, and the melody plays on, but the individual players come and go constantly. Right? This is a real pain when you're recording single neurons uh, all day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and But when, when you get this higher level of electric fields, now you're start, starting to get organization on a useful scale, and you're getting organization that's stable, and there's no representational uh, drift. So... Cognitive function is going to be at the level of this melody playing. It's not going to be the it's not going to be the level of individual players because individual players come and go constantly. And if you want to have top-down control, you know, executive control of thought, you can't do it on the level of individual players because they're fickle. They come and go constantly. It's got to be on the level of um, if you will, if I may carry the analogy further, orchestra sections, this larger scale organization of activity, and that's where the LFPs and, and electric fields come in.
And it's not to say that the neurons aren't important because you can't get there without the spiking activity in the individual neurons. But I think that's the level in which a lot of interesting stuff happens because that's a very extremely useful level, the level you, of electric fields and LFPs. I think I've heard you talk about, you know, there's the proverbial spotlight uh, or you look for your keys under the lamppost. And that's what yeah. we were doing when we were uh, under the single neuron doctrine and recording single neurons and talking about that. I mean, we still are under, we're just under a different lamppost now, but is it just a wider field of view or do you think that that lamppost will change again in the future? You know, now, now that we're thinking of like these higher order um, LFPs and, and larger scale um, and high, high dimensional recordings and so on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this goes back to what I said earlier about us being stepping stones. I mean, the, the um, single neuron rate coding model was the dominant paradigm back in the 20th century, and now we're more into this emergent property paradigm. Well, someday this paradigm will be replaced too, and it'll be something else. Now, do I feel inadequate or depressed that one day the paradigm I'm working under will be replaced? No, because we can't get to that future paradigm without going through this one first. So we're all just stepping stones, and we all got to kind of make peace with that. Um, yeah, so, um, and this is straight out of Thomas Kuhn. I mean, like, you know, like uh, people, scientists, is the, science, science is always this tension between tradition and rebellion, right? Tradition in the sense that you got to propose things that are reasonable. I'm not going to say that, you know, spirits are controlling my executive functions. I'm going to say something reasonable, like electric fields are, because the brain's electric. So that's reasonable. That's, that's the appealing to tradition. It's got to be something that's plausible. But at the same time, it's rebellion because you, your you, job of science is to move forward beyond the the current paradigm. So you know we can't get too stuck in our in our uh, in our current paradigm. And when people say things like oh you know um, LFPs and oscillations they're epiphenomenal. No one knows enough. Not you, me. No one in this world knows enough about the brain to say something like that is an ep epiphenomenon. When I hear mm -hmm. something's an epiphenomenon, when someone says something's an epiphenomenon, I hear that doesn't fit my model. Hmm. But we have to have those models, right? Just to think about yeah. um, anything. Yes, yes yeah, that's right. That's, it's a frustrating so thing knowing the, the that models, all of our models this model are wrong. That, oh, all our models are wrong. And, and like yeah. uh, some are more wrong than others, though. <laughs> but um, uh, like right now, this what I'm everything I'm telling you, you know, maybe long after I'm gone, 10, 20, 30 years, and people say, oh, that's a, yeah, that was, that's not the way things work. It's, 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 there was some truth to it. Just like there's some truth to, the, there's truth to the, um, uh, individual neurons and spiking and rate coding that plays an important role of brain function, but it's not everything. And what I'm proposing now is not everything either. And one day people will see it's not everything and there'll be a new paradigm, but that's just the way science works. You got to, you can't hang on to old paradigms. You know, if you want to hang on to old things, then join the clergy, you know? <laughs> I, I know that we're on an aside, but this is fun. So I'm going to stay on it for a moment before I bring us back to capacity, which we never talked about. But so, oh, yeah. You know, you, you've often talked about how, I mean, you think that this is a paradigm change that you have experienced throughout your career, going from that clockwork-like single neuron function view of the brain to now a more holistic. Uh, has that, um, and, and of course, a paradigm shift is not a real thing, right? That, that's a model or metaphor itself. But, I mean, we can think of it as a real thing. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that has been accompanied by a shift in thinking in a reductionist manner, or is, is neuroscience still predominantly in a reductionism sort of regime, and, and should it be, if so, or if not? Well, reductionism is important, especially in a, in a new science, especially when you figure out something that's complicated in the brain, because, again, you got to figure out the 
fundamentals, how, how things work. I would say we're still in a reductionistic phase. We're just less reductionistic now because we're still there's still a lot to figure out the brain and there's still a lot we don't understand. So we're still kind of in the almost the cataloging sense that uh, that we're figuring out, we're, we're describing phenomenon and cataloging them and we're putting them together into models and, and paradigms and frameworks. And But they will, they're, again, they're only, our current theories are things to use to generate and test hypotheses. They're not things to be, things to be cherished and preserved. Well said. Okay. All right, let's get back to uh, capacity. And, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about working memory is because, and I don't think that we've even mentioned this yet, the old way of thinking, the classic way of thinking about working memory and how it works in brains is that you, um, while you're thinking of something, your neuron concerned with that thing, Apple, is active throughout the period that you're thinking of it, maintaining it in working memory. And then when you're done with thinking of apples, then that neuron goes quiet. And that's, that is the classic story based on neurologic, um, neurophysiology recordings and um, other means. And that story, that's the story that has changed over time. And so this is kind of like what we're going back to uh, talking about the oscillations. And, and yep. maybe you can say a word about the capacity of our content versus our uh, ability to, to access that content. Well, I think we're talking about two things. We're talking about the capacity and we're talking about the story about working memory, the working memory model. And they're related to one another because that the capacity enters into working memory. But stepping back for a moment, the view of work memory used to be persistent activity. You're thinking about right. something and neurons are spiking, 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 spiking. And then when you stop thinking about it, they stop spiking. Well, that largely is a vest. And by the way, that's a 50 year old model from 1971. So um, I think you'd, you'd be hard pressed to argue that we figured out everything 50 years ago, especially something with high level cognition like working memory. We figured out 50 years ago and nothing has essentially changed. That's just no way. Um, but what, 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 what that's lar that view is largely a vestige of the single neuron approach because what do you do when you record from a single neuron? You, first of all, when, I know this because you, you and I both spent a long time doing this. If you only can record from one neuron at a time, you're looking for neurons that do something interesting. So yeah, first of all, you're, yeah. bias, you're biasing your, your sampling towards the property you're looking for. And then what you do, because you're only recording a single neuron, is you record 30 trials or 25 trials and you average across them and get the average activity. Well, all that averaging of activity masks all these interesting dynamics that are going on because averaging throws all those dynamics away. And now that we're recording from many electrodes simultaneously, we can't select individual neurons, for so we're doing more random sampling. And we're having enough power now, statistical power, to look at things at an individual trial level, what happens in real time. And what happens in real time is not persistent activity. You will find you find that the bulk of neurons they fire just periodically, and there's lots of pauses in, in, during during these memory delays. Now, you know, um, so now that's not to say that spiking during memory delays is again. There's always truth to the old old story, and this spiking during memory delays does underlie working memory. It's just not persistent spiking. There's something much more complex going on there. There's there's sparse firing. There's this interplay, these alpha, beta, and gamma dynamics as they go back and forth. There's periods of spiking with gamma, then alpha comes along and then shuts it down, and then it gets re-expressed again. That's what actually goes on if you look in real time at a, a, um, and across many neurons during a um, performance of a working memory task. There's, it's much more complex than, than we thought. 
And uh, the, uh, so the question is, how does the brain maintain memories with, when the spiking is only sparse and there's gaps in time with no spiking? Well, that comes from actually one of the last papers of Pat Gomer Kish, one of the people, pioneers of neurophysiology working memory. She and her colleagues identified short-term synaptic plasticity mechanisms that when mm -hmm. a neuron spike, they potentiate synaptic weights for about a little under, about a second, based on calcium di dynamics. And um, that's the current thinking is that that's what's going on, is, is the uh, neurons spike periodically during this memory delay, but then the spiking has a temporary change of synaptic weights that essentially leaves an impression in the network of, what, of the spiking pattern just occurred. Then, then, then after a while, the system's got to spike again to refresh those weights. Okay, so, that, so that seems to be the way that state of the art about how work, working memory works. So it needs to spike about once a second then to do that, or or do, it spikes and it sets the weights and then they're stored in what are called silent synapses, perhaps, which we can talk about in a second. Uh, mm -hmm. Or the, it doesn't matter. The next time it spikes, it'll reactivate that short-term weight. Is that how it works? So it's yeah, not, it doesn't right. have to be once per second? It doesn't have to be once per second. And if you're holding multiple, you know, again, get the capacity. If you're holding multiple things in the mind simultaneously, then it may not be, you have different spiking of different representations. In fact, that's uh, one, of the, one of the ways we think that it may work. Is that, So the problem with persistent spiking, the way you model persistent spiking is something called attractor dynamics. Attractor dynamics is a state of pattern of activity in a network, right? Well, one thing computational modeling has shown is that tractor dynamics are a really bad way to do working memory <laughs> because um, for, because if there's any overlap in two attractor dynamics, they smush together and, mm -hmm. and you lose the information. Um, and one thing we have learned about higher level cortex is that there's not isolated representations of one object versus another. There's mixed selectivity and multifunctional neurons. There's a lot of overlap in, in representation. So one thought about how why why uh, the brain works this way is, first of all, lots of spiking costs lots of energy. You don't want the brain spiking constantly, so sparse spiking is better. But beyond that, if you're trying to hold multiple things in mind, say two or three things in mind simultaneously, with this sparse spiking, you can activate the one representation, then the other, then the other, then the other, and they don't overlap in time, so you don't have this problem of attractor dynamics smushing together and, and messing messing things up. And that may, that may, that's one explanation of why we have this capacity limitation. There's only so many um, refresh rates you can have between spiking activity without the, without the um, representation smushing together. So that's one explanation. The other explanation that, um, that is not mutually exclusive, could both be, is that because it's becoming increasingly clear that cognition is rhythmic, not just working memory, but cognition in general. For example... You know, we've shown this with this alpha-beta dynamics, and there's constant shuffling going back and forth between alpha-beta and gamma. And um, people like Sabine Kastner, for example, Princeton, she has studied sustained attention. The animal has to pay attention to a stimulus on a computer screen, or location computer screen, because there's going to be a faint target there, and you got to catch that target as soon as it, it occurs. Sustained attention should be the most sustained thing ever in the brain. <laughs> and when you look at it, it waxes and wanes in theta four times a second. Hmm. Hmm. You know, so so uh, both behaviorally, your the animal's better detecting the target than worse, than better than worse, and those mirror the theta LFP oscillations going on in cortex at, at the same time. Now, if you really think about it a lot, it, it makes a lot of sense because if I have sustained attention, sure, I want to pay attention here, but I can't ignore everything else around me. So these periodic um, oscillatory dynamics um, allow the brain to free up for a moment, make and check everything else to make sure nothing else. Is going on that needs needs attending. So it makes sense the brain would work in in this um, 
in this uh, rhythmic way. And plus it does. Mm. I mean, your brain's like a big rhythmic machine and it's the most obvious signal you record from the brain. So it's come, come increasingly obvious to many of us that the brain works not by continuous analog computation. It works by squirting these packets of information periodically around cortex in, in these in these oscillatory. So it's a, there's a uh, packet sent and pause and packet sent. That's what these oscillations are doing. And if that's mm. the case, that means everything for the current contents of consciousness have to fit into one oscillatory cycle. So that's explanation. And um, if you think about it, you actually could run into a refractory period. You actually, it's actually got to be half a oscillatory cycle. Mm-hmm. So when Marcus Siegel was in my lab a number of years ago, Mar- Mar- Marcus Siegel and Melissa Warden published this paper where they had the animal hold two pictures in mind simultaneously in their order, much like I described you earlier with the spatial computing. And what they found was that there was these 30 hertz oscillations in prefrontal cortex and spiking that represented the first object versus the second object lined up on different phases of, of the 30 hertz oscillation. So what the cortex was doing was juggling this picture one and two, one picture one, picture two, and the cortex was juggling them one, two, one, two, one, two, 30 times a second. Mm-hmm. That's what the phase offset is. It's a juggling act. The ju- brain's juggling, get both my hands in the picture, juggling them uh, 30 times a second. Yeah. Right. And if that's the way the high level cognition works, well, there's only so many balls you can juggle with in, in, in one wave. Right. What is so I'm kind of now I'm kind of conflating the idea of uh, different frequencies of oscillations, high frequency and low frequency in, in the range with dimensionality. And I'm thinking, oh, is low frequency? Does that mean low dimensionality and high frequency? Is that a high dimension, more high dimensional signal? Does that make sense? Uh, no, <laughs> that's not the, not the way we, uh, think about it. This, this, um, the information expresses in, in, in these, um, neurons, the spiking of neurons and the connections between neurons forming, forming engrams. And that's where the dimensionality is. And dimensionality comes from the mixed selectivity neurons that allow high dimensionality or allow dimensionality reduction, depending on, on, on task demands. The, the way we think about the oscillations is that they're a way of, controlling the um, ongoing activity in the brain, not so much uh, to do with dimensionality reduction or dimensionality ex- expansion. But okay, so but I thought you had said that the like the low frequency oscillations are essentially take that high dimensional neural activity and funnel it into a lower dimensional state. Do I have that wrong? Oh, no, you're right. But also, yeah, in that sense, yes, I see what you mean. So when when you're controlling when you have a bunch of high dimensional information that could be expressed in your brain and you're using these alpha oscillations to funnel or guideline, provide these guide rails, you're, you're actually narrowing the focus of activity to, toward a small num- a smaller amount of information. So in that sense, they do engage in dimensionality reduction. Okay, yeah. So but I was, not... talking about more, I was talking about more yeah. after the information has already been expressed, what, what, yeah. what, what's high dimension versus low dimension. Right. What... Uh... How how low dimensional is our uh, thinking? Is our conscious uh, subjective experience? So if you you know if you can keep three to four or whatever, however many things in working memory, um, you know, do you think about our cognition, which is rhythmic? Do you think about it in terms of a certain uh, band of frequency? <laughs> a certain band of frequency. Um... Well, are we, are we no. alpha? Do we think in alpha? Do we think in theta? Like you were, you know, if if 
that is no we think we think we think we think with the combinations of all the all these things they're all doing different things like the um again the gamma and spiking with high energy states or information is being expressed alpha beta helps control that and theta you get down to theta theta probably has multiple functions too like all the rest of these um bands of oscillations and one thing theta does is that gamma in cortex um is often cross frequency coupled to theta and one idea for computational modeling is theta is helping pace when gamma can be expressed, and alpha beta mm. sort of sculpts on, on, on top of that. So it's a way of, again, another way of moving representations out in time so you don't overlap with one another. Okay. So, so um, thought is every, thought of all this together, I would never reduce thought to just one frequency, one band, or one anything. Yeah. But isn't there, I, I really thought, and I can't remember the source of this information, that there was a proposed rhythm of sort of our subjective ongoing thoughts right happen at a you know within some range of oscillatory uh, frequency right like switching to thinking from cats to dogs and it's it's not instantaneous yeah. and it's not everything altogether well a lot of this stuff is going to depend on the demands of the task at hand for example one for mm -hmm. those the sustained attention task i, I was uh, um, talking about with that sabine castner performed where uh, the tension is waxing awaiting at um theta the animal has to make a behavioral response, so that's going to slow down the system a little bit. Um, Tim Bushman did a study in my laboratory where he studied covert attention. Now the animal has to search for a stimulus in an array of stimuli, like a Where's Waldo kind of thing. Um, only the animal is not, going to move, is not allowed to move its eye. It has to search with its mind's eye. So now you're not worried about something physically moving, so now the system can move quicker. And we found that the spotlight of attention that was searching the mind's eye, the eye is still, but the mind's eye, the spotlight of attention moving around searching for the stimulus, that was operating around 20 hertz uh, mm. at a higher uh, higher um, um, duty cycle. And probably because, you know, so the brain adopts whatever frequencies it can use for the task at hand. And when the system can work quicker, it's going to use a higher frequency. And when it has to slow down because of things like physical limitations, you're going to slower frequency. One thing I want to mention, I keep thinking, but I haven't had a chance to slip it in yet, is that, you know, there's something called multiple realization in, in the brain. Nobody, everybody's brain isn't wired the same way, <laughs> right? So yeah. you look at something like Eve Martyr's work at Brandeis, where she's studying the uh, how pyloric motion, how food moves down the uh, digestive tract of, a, of a, um, lobster, I think it is. Lobsters and crabs, yeah. Lapsers and crabs. And there's like three ganglion. I may be getting some of these details right, so correct me if I'm wrong. There's like three ganglion. And she found there's something like 50,000 ways you could tune up these three ganglion to produce the exact same function. Yeah, yeah. And if you look, all of our brains are going to be a little different. So there's going to, the principles are going to be the same, but the exact details of how stuff is done is going to vary a bit from person to person. That's why I don't want to get hung up on, you know, beta versus alpha. Like, you know, it's yeah. probably the relative frequency is going to matter, not, not, a, not a sharp dividing line. And all That's, of our brains are going to be a little bit different. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Eve Martyr because you talk about this in terms of um, anatomy as possibility, not destiny. And and that is yeah. alongside the multiple realizability idea, and that's something I've uh, that's I've sort of shifted in my thought, becoming more interested in the idea of capacity as a principle, right? Instead of thinking, you know, the the, the nature of the um, relationship between structure and function has always plagued uh, neuroscience, right? Mm -hmm. But if you start thinking of structure more as possibility or capacity, that kind of frees you up a little bit, or me in my thinking about it. And I just think it's a beautiful principle. Yeah, 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 and like you ask, like why we um, are, are so single-minded, 
they're incredibly single-minded. I mean, like uh, when you see the humans can hold four or five things in mind simultaneously, that's under the best of circumstances when you're <laughs> testing somebody with like a bunch of colored squares on a computer screen, just which color changed. When it comes to real complex thought, we are incredibly single-minded. So there's, there's um, at least when it comes to consciousness and cognition, there is a single-mindedness and a single track kind of thing, something that can funnels activity in a way that's, that allows us to uh, engage in things we're consciously aware of. And that seems to be highly limited in, in capacity. And it may be due because you need to funnel this information in a certain way along this mm. infrastructure of the road and highway system. Um, yeah, so that's a – and, you know, people often – something bit parenthetically here one thing i I used to give this public lecture on how you shouldn't try to multitask because you can't right and and no one can you know and uh we're, we're very single single-minded creatures and we you know but we have we our brains crave information our brains evolved in an environment where there wasn't a lot of information available you know we only could direct action to one thing at, at a time so our brains probably evolved in, in, with those kind of constraints and said, okay, this is the this is the job at hand. So why not be single mind? I'm getting anthropomorphic here, but why not be single minded? Why not develop this way of a uh, of of doing cognition that's single minded focus? So we didn't really need much of anything else at the time. We didn't grow up in this. Uh, we didn't involve our brains didn't involve in this environment where there's everything available simultaneously, all, all vying for for, for our, our attention. So why do we have a capacity limitation for consciousness and cognition? I don't know. It's the, it's the way our brains, we could, we could explain now using these things like kind of the explanations I gave them, why, how the brain operates and why that would be the case. But why it got to this case, why it evolved this way, maybe just say life is like a Kurt Vonnegut novel. Things happen <laughs> randomly and everything changes, you know? But why do we want to multitask? Well, if multitasking is so suboptimal, why do we seem to want to do it if we're just screwing ourselves over? Yeah. And that's because, again, this environment our brain's involved in. We evolved in an information-poor environment where, you know, um, there wasn't a lot of things to pay attention to. But something that comes along, some information might be really, really important, like the rustling in the bushes could be a tire is going to leap out at you. So our brains also it's – it's a paradox. Our brains evolved, you know, it's a single-mindedness, but we also evolved this – thirst for new knowledge because new new knowledge was adaptable was adaptable and may save our lives mm. um so that's why and now we are in a, a very different environment that our brains involved in where there's not you know it's not information poor it's information ov overloaded so we crave it and we can't help ourselves because our brains evolved to think that oh any new information must be really 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 important and we can't turn it off but in reality twitter is useless <laughs> I'm not going to, well. Okay, <laughs> I didn't. I thought I could get you on there, but okay, all right. I'll just state it then. <clears throat> all right, Earl, um, I'm aware of our time, but there are a couple more um, things about working memory that I would love for you to sure. just discuss a little bit uh, because our conception of working memory has changed um, through this, what we're calling a paradigm shift. One idea that um, I'd love for you to discuss is the idea, idea of silent synapses. And I know that you guys worked with this and, and built... Uh, a recurrent neural network um, mm -hmm. that, that with and without short-term synaptic, synapticplicity like you were talking about and found um, some effects of, of, of the short-term synaptic plasticity based on these silent synapses. So what is the idea of the, a silent synapse? And, and then maybe you can discuss that work. Well, in, in this work, what we do, we ask the question, um, how is it that the brain can hold things in working memory without with, through these gaps in time of, of no spiking? That's where these silent synapses come in. So what the spiking is doing is sort of temporarily setting synaptic weights, 
attention anyway, it's leaving this impression so that when another bolus of activity comes in, the neurons now express the, the synapses now express the information they have. And we started that work by trying to solve a simple question, like what are the mechanisms that allow the brain to hold things in mind consciously? With these, with these gaps in time. And, and when we, we, we tested neural networks with or without the, the old way of thinking, persistent activity, tractor dynamics, no synaptic plasticity, just neurons are constantly spiking. We compared those models against models that had short-term synaptic plasticity. And what's interesting is that both tasks can solve um, the working memory in the case of the tractor dynamics, as long as you're holding one thing in mind, it can solve working memory. Once you put a second thing in there, all bets are off. So that's something else we could talk about. But um, they could both could solve a simple working memory task. But what we found is that you add in this short-term synaptic plasticity, and there's all these other benefits that that uh, mm. and that little to do with working memory are good for network functioning in general. Uh, um, adding in the short-term synaptic plasticity makes um, network networks deal with um, noise better. So that you could add noise into the input, and it doesn't bother these networks. Once they have the short-term short-term synaptic plasticity, they can they can they can deal with the noise. And the other thing it does is it allows allows graceful graceful degradation of networks. So in our study, when we had our models that had persistent activity alone, attractor dynamics, if you delete randomly delete as little as ten percent of the synapses, then the network falls apart, can't do the task mm -hmm. anymore. But you add in the short-term synaptic plasticity, and now you could blow away 40% of the synapses, and the network is doing just fine. And graceful degradation has got to be the way your brain works because your brain's constantly shuffling and losing uh, <laughs> uh, neurons. I know mine is. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's an important principle of, uh, of networks. So just right there tells you there's something something must be going on. Well, you mentioned uh, Goldman Rakish and alongside the idea of silent synapses, but I, I thought Mark Stokes had a, a lot to do with the idea. Oh, he did. Yeah. No, um, Paco, I'm talking about, the, she wrote, had this one paper, one of her last papers before she was tragically killed by a, a car crossing the street. Um, and she showed this in slices from the prefrontal cortex that you, you there's these calcium dynamics that, that can do short-term potentiation of synapses. Mark Stokes really gets a lot of credit for really introducing the idea of activity silent um, um, model into working memory. And he showed in a, in a series of really elegant work that you get not only is working memory activity silent, like we're describing activity than quiet, but also the persistent activity, the attractive dynamic model is you, 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 it's like a latch circuit in the brain. The stimulus comes along, you flip a light switch and, it, and activity simply maintains that stimulus as it is until the, until the memory delay is over. Well, Mark also showed that it's not the case at all. If you really look carefully and look at you know groups of neurons, you can see the dynamic, the representations, what the neurons are doing are constantly shifting and changing and evolving over time. Hmm. So it's it's working memory is not persistent; it's activity silent, and it's not steady state. It's a it's a lot it's a lot of changing and, sh and shifting dynamics. And everything that we've done since Mark first proposed this activity silent model has supported that. We see the same things. So, um, yeah. Mark, Mark Stokes tragically died recently. He was a, a real pioneering researcher, and he was one of these people who, um, you know, he was bold enough to stick his thumb in the eye of dogma, something I obviously appreciate. Um, he was bold enough to stick his thumb in the eye of dogma and try to tear down dogma, but he didn't just, he wasn't just a naysayer. He actually followed up with really elegant work that, that supported his point. Yeah. So he will be sorely yeah. missed. Yeah, I, I I read that he recently passed as well. I think it was cancer, right? <clears throat> um, 
So th- thinking about the dynamics, we, we talk a lot about dynamics on this podcast and you were talking about how they're constantly shifting and, and you know, looking at the dynamics is possible because of these high uh, dimensional recordings that we can now do where we're recording tons of neurons. Um, and so that's what uh, another thing I was going to ask you about to, to describe is when you guys look at the d- dynamics, um, you see like different subspaces and the different components of working memory are shifting. And this is where the goal comes in and that the actual decision to uh, to make a decision to make a movement or something um, that the dynamics switch between uh, from encoding to the moment of decision. Maybe you can describe that much better than I just butchered it. Yeah, the subspace coding is really interesting development. It's something that we're starting to look at. Tim Bushman has done some excellent work on sub- subspace coding, really elegant stuff. Like one, in one study, he has the animal um, pay attention to a stimulus, ignore another one in one condition. That's visual attention. And a working memory task where you give the animal two stimuli in the middle of working memory delay, you say you can forget one, forget one of those. And what he shows is that the cortex goes into his different subspaces, one for relevant stimuli and one for irrelevant stimuli. It parks things in the relevant subspace domain when you don't need to pay attention. It doesn't get rid of the what's it because who knows, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the future. You may need it again, but the brain sort of parks it in this in this uh, in this um, subspace. Um, and he has a recent paper which which found mind blowing. It's a it's, it's a bioarchives hasn't hasn't been um, uh, peer reviewed yet, um, but it's. He shows that different cortical areas in different subspaces can simultaneously talk to other cortical areas in different subspaces at the same time. And you read something like that and you think, God, yeah, that's the way the brain should work. Yeah. You know, that's, <laughs> it's got to be complex like that. You know, so the subspace stuff, you know, for many, many years we talked about, you know, just changes in rate coding. Visual attention is an example. Yeah. I, pay, I pay attention to yeah. something and there's lots of activity to that stimulus. And I ignore it, and there's little or no activity to that stimulus. And it was all just more activity or less activity. Now it's starting to feel like we're looking at the shadows of the cave wall, if I may use another analogy, um, and that we're looking at a, a, a impoverished glimpse of what's actually going on. And, and, and the subspace coding is more it, – it's more rich, it's more complex, and seems to be more attuned to the kind of things that the brain would need to do. Now, what subspace coding is, people don't know. Essentially, what it is is diff- different patterns of activity. If you have a certain pattern of activity across a group of neurons, that's one subspace. A different pattern will produce another subspace. So it's not just which neurons are activated or how they're activated. It's how they're activated in relationship to one another, what, what patterns they form. And that's another example of an emergent property that we could not get by studying one neuron at a time. How, dimension- how high dimensional are subspaces? How many subspaces can we have? That's a good question. Don't know. I mean, this work is fairly new. I guess that's something yeah. that's something else that could feed into this question of um, of why do we have um, capacity limitations in cognition? Do you, Do you think that the dynamical systems theory approach, you know, th- um, studying the dynamics in these uh, different state spaces and subspaces, do you think that that has uh, ushered in a new neuroscience era? And 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 sorry to add another kind of question to that, but you know, some people think that um, it's sort of a s- stepping stone to thinking about cognition, tying, tying neural activity to cognition. It's, it's, we should think more in terms of relating thoughts and cognition to these sort of dynamical substate spaces than mm-hmm. to the activity of a bunch of neurons. Um, certainly, that's what subspace coding is all about. It's, it's looking at another dimension of, it's not just neurons firing when they fire. It's, it's, um, it's these patterns of firing and how they how they form this emergent property of, of, a, of a group of neurons working together and um, 
if subspace coding didn't happen now, it was not bound to happen inevitably because the brain's got to be working that level of complexity. It can't just be individual neurons turning on, on and off and conveying information. It's got to be something in the configuration of which neurons are firing. And that's what a subspace code is. What do you think um, the – how do I ask this? So uh, I, I asked you about your 2001 classic, which is – what is it like? The one, top five most cited neuroscience papers? Is that still correct? Last I checked, fifth most cited paper in the history of neuroscience. Man, but who, who's that? counting? <laughs> yeah, that's right. First of all, so um, uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is going to sound rude or not, but do you feel like, you know, like when someone writes a, a hit song, right? And then they don't have another hit song for, you know, decades. Not that you, you've been writing hit song after hit song in science. Don't Are get me wrong. Are you saying I haven't had any hit songs in 2001? <laughs> Let me back up. Let me back up. No, I'm just, so what are we I'm talking curious, about like, then? <laughs> I, I'm curious how you, how you view that. Um, you know, I don't know how artists view it when they have like their most popular song, right? Is they, they wrote 30 years ago or something. And they've been putting out great work. Uh, they got sober and they're still putting out great work. No, I'm, I'm just kidding about the sober. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm wondering like how you reflect on that and then what you think moving forward if you're like itching to write another paper that, you know, whether it, that just gets cited um, as much, right? I, I'm not talking about the quality of your work. I'm just talking about the reflection on like what you want moving forward and how you reflect on that. Well, I'm not trying to chase glory here. I'm trying to chase science. And like, I would, I'm thinking about doing an update to the Miller and Co. model where we bring in all these other things like subcortical structures and loops between them and things like oscillatory yeah. dynamics that help sculpt activity. That would be the, the update, I, I believe, I hope. The, the Miller and Co. the essential idea is still correct, but now it's a matter of it needs an update because that was very much still in the... Um, vein of like you know rate coding still and, and uh right simply right. you know but so now we i, I would i, would, I want to i'm thinking about an update where we bring in all these up uh, new ways of thinking about the brain it's not not it's not like you know we're saying that that uh that the, the original model was wrong it's just a way of extending it and, and updating it everything needs to be updated science is constantly moving forward like you know and especially something that's 21 years old now yeah damn well should be an update at this point and you could cite it again if you do an update to it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> no. I should start yeah. writing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but you know, moving forward in your own career, how, how do you view the rest of your career playing out? I mean, are you going to continue? Are there things that you are interested in that you have not studied in the past that you want to shift to, despite your uh, the the faculty saying you shouldn't, for for example, or? How do you well, view the rest? We're well beyond that. We're, we're well beyond that now. Um, <laughs> yeah. they Did they apologize, now. by the way? Did they ever apologize? <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. we're, I mean they, can't, they can't tell me what to do anymore. Oh, I know. Only granting know. Ag agencies could do that. Only study sections can do that. Um, uh, sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> the question is, uh, you know, how, just how do you envision the future of your own career and your ah. interests and how, how you picture yourself moving forward? Well, I don't mean to be glib, but I'd say more of the same. You know, um, one thing we're very interested in doing is since I'm interested in oscillatory dynamics, I want to see if I can um, change, mo modulate, manipulate the oscillatory dynamics and uh, and uh, see if we can get changes in the brain that are correspond with the predictions of our model. So we're now about to start a series of investigations where we're doing a closed-loop electrical stimulation. Our lab developed a new ultra-fast Ultra fast read write closed loop stimulation. Closed loop stimulation is when you read the oscillations from the brain, then you match 
stimulation to those oscillations. And to do that, you need, you need a real fast read-write latency. So our lab developed a new closed-loop stimulation system mm -hmm. that's just now being installed where we can, um, if the read-write latency is below 10 milliseconds, so we can manipulate a lot of different frequencies, a lot of different uh, from low to, low to high. So we're very, very interested in, in, in doing that. Having said that, I just talked about a causal manipulation in the brain where, where we do that. But having said that, we also have to keep in mind that, you know, people – Causality is not simple in the brain. People think caus causal stuff is, uh, oh, you just well, you know, do something and something happens and you have the answer. No, causality is not that simple in, in the brain. It's actually much more complex than people think. And causal manipulations are, are another tool. They're not, they're not the gold standard. It's another tool in our, in our toolkit. And like for, here's, here's an example that my uh, PhD advisor used to talk about, Charlie Gross. Like, uh, for example, let's say I um, record from the cortex of an animal and the animal's performing a task. And I hit the animal on the toe with a hammer while it's performing the task. Well, the animal is going to stop performing the task and neural activity in cortex is going to change. Are you saying there's a causal link between the big toe and the cortex? No, obviously, because speak, people, people often here's the logic that people often see. And you see this over and over again. They'll, they'll, they'll manipulate one area of the brain, A. They'll record from another area of the brain, B, and they'll study behavior. Hmm. So they change A. Activity in B changes and behavior changes. So they go, oh, that must be the causal link, A to B to behavior, right? But what if instead it's A, you change A, that changes behavior, and behavior goes back and changes the activity in B? That's equally plausible. Now, I'm not saying let's throw out all causal manipulations. I'm saying that we have to think about them in a judicious way because they're, they're important tools, but the, the effects of causal manipulations are not as straightforward as people think. So we just got to think of them as another tool, not as a gold standard. And having said that, if I may go on, yeah. Uh, people, people often say, well, you know, about oscillations, why can't you do a study that where you causally manipulate the oscillations and shows that has a causal effect on brain function? Yeah, this was well, just... sure. That's what we're trying to do. But all these people are saying this, they're the people who are still vested in this whole rate coding single neurons. And I say to them, okay, can you do a study where you change rate coding in the brain and don't change anything else and it, it changes um, function? No, you can't. No one's ever done that study. It hasn't happened. The moment you inject current into the brain, you maybe think you're you're using a rate coding model, but the moment you inject current in the brain, you're changing the LFPs, you're changing the oscillations, you're changing the electric field, you're changing everything. So the kind of causal manipulations that the oscillation naysayers are looking for, their own model doesn't hold up to the to the, that that kind of scrutiny. And that's that's where now we get back to Thomas Kuhn and paradigm shifting, holding mm -hmm. the new model up to a higher standard than, than your own model. There are no causal relations in the brain that prove the rate coding model either. Have your ideas about causality changed over the years since that old rate coding clockwork-like uh, view of the brain? Because I, I, I think I used to have a naive idea about causality, and now I'm awash in thinking that almost everything is causal, like a constraint is causal, context is, you know, it's like everything seems causal in some way. Well, I think it's a good open-minded attitude to have at this point because we still know we still know very we only scratch the surface how the brain works. So right now, any plausible mechanisms out there should be considered to be a possibility, not an epiphenomenon that can be ignored. That's that's a that's just paradigm defending. All right, Earl, I appreciate all the time you've spent with me, and um, good luck with the band moving forward, and of course the science. Not that you need luck with either, but. But thanks for talking working memory. And we didn't talk much executive function. We didn't um, get into the executive function aspect of working memory, but another time perhaps. So anyway, thanks for your so. time. Okay, thank you. It's a pleasure.
I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our Discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI, The Quest to Explain Intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you, thank you for your support. See you next time.